0: Welcome to On The Ball with Rick Buker. Here's your host. let might send it over to Rick Buker. Rick Buker.
1: This is On The Ball on the United Wecast Network, and I am Rick Buker. You can see me on FS1, hear me on Fox Sports Radio, and you can read me now on the new Fox Sports app, or simply go to foxsports.com. You can also follow me on both Twitter and Instagram, at Rick Buecher. I'm a lot of places. But there's only one place you can hear me talking about story angles and perspectives that you are not likely to find anywhere else, primarily but not exclusively involving the NBA. And that is here. So after the last episode about the discord between Ben Simmons and the Philadelphia 76ers and the recent introduction of Simmons' mental health as a reason for his unwillingness to play for them, I was hoping to have a more basketball-centric, even feel-good topic for this episode. And I will get to one, or maybe even two. It's just going to have to share space, or they are going to have to share space, with another troubling subject, and that's the story ESPN just dropped with a host of allegations of misogyny and racism by Phoenix Sun's owner, Robert Sarver. I have had limited interaction with Sarver over the years. I've never interviewed him or even had a casual conversation. I actually never had the desire, thanks to a combination of stories I'd heard about him and glimpses of his behavior. I'm sure you've been around people that You've seen from afar, across the room, whatever it may be. And they appear or act so socially awkward, you just decide to steer clear of them. That was the feeling I got watching Sarver. There was this abrasive vibe that just seemed to radiate off of him. There was one game in Phoenix, I remember, just a couple years ago, where afterward, he was down by the scorer's table demanding that they show a replay on the big screen so he could watch it. Now, keep in mind, he'd already been an owner of the Suns well over a decade. Uh, the game had been over for several minutes, but some of the crowd was still making their way out of the arena. And the reason I point out that he'd been the owner for quite some time is because he'd suffered losses like this before. This was after a loss. And there was a play at the end of the game that went against the Suns, Uh, as I said, game ended in a loss, and he was barking at the Jumbotron operator, whoever was left at the scorer's table, and waving his arms like a disturbed homeless person on a street corner and looking up at the screen. It just seemed so weird. It's not as if the Suns had played the kind of game that night where they were robbed of a victory because of that one play. I can't even remember what the play was... Sarver may have had a point, but he was acting as if they had been robbed. And to do it in such a public place, I'd never seen that before, even in Mark Cuban's grandstanding heyday. Now, when owners become owners for the first time, and certainly Sarver was like this. I seem to remember him being sitting on the courtside with a foam finger. Mark Cuban was the same way. Uh... Joe of uh, owners for the first time, they they uh, go a little crazy with the attention and the celebrity. They're uh, ultra-rich guys who've never had this kind of attention before, public attention, and sometimes it takes a little while for them to get used to it or find out what the proper decorum is. So I usually give them a pass early on, but this was well over a decade later in Sarver's tenure as the Suns' owner. Not only did he go through this on the court, but he then in the Suns' arena, the referee's locker room is near the visiting team's locker room. And I was back there uh, to see the other team. I want to say it was the Spurs. And I recall seeing Sarver waiting outside the ref's door, presumably waiting to berate them about the missed call. I'm not going to recount all the stories I've heard, from crazy behavior. Uh, That's just one example. I've heard stories from everything from the negotiations with the players union to harebrained ideas that he forced upon people in in the organization and certainly a host of awkward, inappropriate comments that he has made. The short of it is I have no doubt that working for him was an uncomfortable experience a good deal of the time. Now, is he misogynistic? There's a clip out there, or at least there was. I believe it's still out there. You can find it. Of Sarver speaking at the memorial of a son's minority owner, Dick Heckman. In which Sarver talks about Heckman outmaneuvering his sons to score chicks on their boat. He actually calls the boat a bordello. This is in the memorial and recounts on how his one visit to the boat took his kids aboard. Kids were under 10, both of them under 10, and he walked in on a two-on-one. <laughs> and I'm not talking about a two-on-one fast break. Now, keep in mind, Sarver is telling all this at a memorial in front of Heckman's widow. You don't have to know anyone involved to sense how absolutely uncomfortable and inappropriate Sarver's comments were. Or, by seeing the video, how oblivious he was to the fact that they were both uncomfortable and inappropriate. And when I saw the video, my only thought was, yep, that's Sarver. It fits with every story I've ever heard about him. Now, that would speak to the misogyny, at least that sort of mindset. I don't have any examples of racist acts or remarks. Would I be surprised? No. Would I be surprised if his denials about using the N-word around Earl Watson were outright lies? No. But I can't cite specific examples of racism from my experience. After it was leaked, and by the way, for those of you, because I saw someone react to uh, Rex Chapman, who basically said, known Sarver for 20 years has never seen him do or say anything racist and somebody come ba- came back at Chapman like you can't, hey, you can't do that like you can't stand up for this guy Chapman is telling you his experience when we have other evidence okay you have to let that evidence stand on itself there's not a demand that immediately everybody pile on what someone else has experienced I'm doing the same thing here. You share what you know. And I have a problem with the idea of shaming people into not speaking their experience because it doesn't fit with the accusations. Enough of that. Anyway, after it was leaked that ESPN had a story coming out on Sarver and he issued a preemptive statement denying its legitimacy, I, like most people, I imagine was interested in reading it, which I did. As most of you know, I've been in this business for a while. I've reported on and written my share of exposés on people in sports, but they didn't involve issues of racism or misogyny. This is a relatively new development in the coverage of sports. Scrapes of the law? Yes, certainly. Team turmoil? Absolutely. But this is relatively new territory, the challenge being to get the incontrovertible proof that leaves no doubt to the allegations. ESPN claimed in the story that it interviewed or gathered information from more than 70 current and former Sons employees to write their piece. That's a lot. Former head coach Earl Watson is one of the handful of people, though, who were willing to be quoted. Former assistant coach Corliss Williamson is another. Now, this is why doing an investigative piece on a team owner might be the most difficult of any in sports. Why? Because it's so difficult to find anyone willing to risk being a source or providing specific information. Usually there's a fear that they can be identified based on the information given, even if their name is not used. You'll find plenty of people will say, yeah, it was horrible working there. I suspect ESPN ran into that issue because, for having spoken to 70 plus people, the number of specific incidents given is fairly minimal. A lot of the quotes are general, as I said, I hated working there, it was a terrible environment, etc. Those declarations, rather than a citing of specific incidents. The concern over being identified, particularly among those who are interested in continuing to be employed somewhere in the NBA, is that they will be blackballed. That every other owner will look at them as a potential informant on his franchise or behavior. Who knows, some of those 70 plus people that are former Sons employees may be working for other teams. And that's not speculation, that fear. I know that's how the majority of people working in the league feel. They can't imagine having the same kind of salary or perks if they weren't in the league. Even lower-level employees see it as prestigious or glamorous, simply saying that they work for the local pro pro franchise. Because they can say they rub elbows with the players here and there, or the coach, or that they just have certain access that others don't. Which makes everyone think twice about saying anything that might get them kicked out of the exclusive NBA circle. Hell, there, there are media people who operate on that same premise. This is the difficulty in doing a piece of this nature. It requires a ton of time. Talking to 70 plus people, tracking just tracking down 70 plus people who are willing to talk takes time. It takes a ton of resources. You're paying a reporter for months of work where he's producing nothing else, just researching this all of which makes it hard to pull the plug and say we don't have enough to run this piece we've gone down this road and we just haven't hit pay dirt because if you do go down that road you want the incontrovertible truth the damning evidence john wertheim's piece for sports illustrated on the dallas mavericks toxic culture For example, there might have actually been fewer people who went on the record in that story, but there were far more who were willing to give examples of specific inappropriate behavior by members of management. It had details that made all the behavior seem habitual and real and and incontrovertible. The Sarver piece had some of that. But the combination of him acknowledging cited incidents but then giving his version of them were, that were plausible but starkly different or outright denials that made it come down to a he said, he said standoff. And people in the organization such as GM James Jones vouching for Sarver's character. It was interesting that that was done through Sarver's attorneys a statement given through his attorneys as to what James was saying, all of that prevented the piece from landing anything close to a knockout blow from where I stand. For what it's worth, knowing how most ownership groups work, I give no credence to the minority owner who talked about how troubling the allegations are and that he trusts the league will get to the bottom of it, etc. That is someone more than likely who would like nothing more than the chance to buy Sarver's stake in the team
0: $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com.
1: That's the other tricky part here when it comes to largely sourced pieces. Teams are full of backstabbers, all looking either to protect their job or vault themselves over someone else. Even the best of teams have a certain Toxicity when it comes to that it i attribute it to all the unique perks and the lifestyle that being being part of an nba franchise affords because it attracts people that put high value on those things and i believe there's a certain soul sickness that comes with making money property and prestige the be all and end all of your existence The piece has prompted the NBA to launch an investigation into Sarver and the Sun's workplace environment. But I suspect, or at least would not be surprised, if their investigators don't uncover any more than ESPN did. Which, again, from where I stand, will not be enough to cost Sarver anything more than a few dollars in a fine and a few hours, maybe, in sensitivity training. What's that line from The Wire When you come for the king, you best not miss. I believe it was Omar Little who delivered that one. I can't help but feel ESPN's shot landed, but wasn't fatal, which makes Sarver a wounded animal. And those can be even more dangerous than they were before. All right, the other subject I wanted to get to is a derivative from the notes column that I wrote for FoxSports.com and the Fox Sports app this week. And if you haven't seen it, What are you waiting for? Check it out. I'm going to be writing every week. So yet another avenue of information that I can provide and entertainment. Anyway, the lead item was about how the new rule interpretations have affected some scorers more than others and pointed to the possibility that the mid-range game may make a comeback as a result. Now, it's still a theoretical premise at this point because we're still so early in the season. But considering who is flourishing and how would suggest that I'm on to something. While some perennial top scorers in the past have seen their numbers drop, most notably Bradley Beal, Trey Young, Damian Lillard, there's a host of other guys who are enjoying career-high scoring numbers, such as Jimmy Butler, DeMar DeRozan, Paul George, Kevin Durant. What do they all have in common? They're all killers in the mid-range. Scorers who have never relied on shooting threes or getting to the free throw line as much as being threats from all over the floor and being able to play through contact. Or, in the case of KD, simply shoot over or around that contact. Butler is a perfect example. He hasn't shot threes this badly since his rookie year. I think he's shooting about 23%. Shot 18% when he was a rookie. Yet, he's averaging a career-high 24 points a game this season so far. Now, how? By shooting a career-high 50% inside the arc. Allowing greater physicality in the paint and allowing defenders to contest threes without risk of having the offensive player throw themselves into the defender and then march to the free throw line for three freebies has balanced out the scoring emphasis now most everyone I talk to in the league is happy to see this turn of events but Then again, I don't have many conversations with members of the analytics circle who had a big influence on the game becoming what it became, or still is arguably, a three-pointer or layup exercise, and nothing in between. And it's not that I wouldn't have a conversation with anybody in the analytics circle. It's simply we've never had the chance to cross paths, as far as I know. The shift also points up exactly how much the league can shape the product we see on the floor through how the game is officiated the league that is, can favor a certain style, a certain roster makeup, now I don't believe in the conspiracies that the league can and does dictate specific team or teams getting to the finals because a lot more goes into being there at the end than just the way a team plays and who it has on its roster, believe it or not but the league can induce teams to be built a certain way and to have certain types of players considered more valuable than others. I'm sure that's a topic that I will explore further in some future episode. But I can't go without mentioning the Lakers' 107-104 loss to the Thunder earlier this evening. If you were sitting next to me as I watched the game, you would have known what was coming even while the Lakers were jumping out to a 19 point lead. Because the Lakers weren't stopping the Thunder. The Thunder were missing a ton of open looks and taking a few too many threes. Not mistaken, they were three for 18 in the first half, and the Lakers were a crisp five for 10. You knew that wasn't going to continue either. I knew the shots at the rim for the Thunder were going to be there all night. They've pretty much been there for any athletic team all season against the Lakers. I also figured at some point Anthony Davis would cool off, even if he hadn't injured his shooting thumb, because he's not that kind of climb on my back and I'll take us to victory type of guy. Never has been. A.D. had 14 points on 7 of 8 shooting in the first quarter. He scored 15 in the next three quarters combined, going 4 for 12. Two-thirds of his 18 rebounds came in the first half. In other words, not when the Lakers needed them most. Now, Lakers fans are going to be quick to point out that LeBron was out with an abdominal strain, which, in the big picture, is not something Lakers fans should be feeling good about. And Kendrick Perkins is going to talk about how Talon Horton Tucker could have been a difference maker, but this is how far the Lakers have fallen. Their fans are all giddy over the play of Avery Bradley, while Warriors fans are singing hallelujahs that their team gave up Bradley in order to keep Gary Payton II. And I like Bradley, but If you're thinking he or Tucker or Trevor Ariza are going to be the saviors or the missing piece to the Lakers' struggles, you're reaching, and you don't have the necessary wingspan. Because you don't get to look past how Carmelo can't defend and Westbrook can't take care of the ball or make a shot when it matters most and AD can't stay healthy. Because you crowed long and loud how it was over that Mello and Westbrook and Rondo and Howard and AD and LeBron were going to take the damn league by storm. And now you're seeing what the more sane of us saw all along. That those stars aren't what they once were. And that constellation doesn't fit together. And they have no chance of even being a good team without LeBron. All right. That does it for this episode of On the Ball on the United Wecast Network. Please rate and review the show on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. There's one other relic that may be making a return that I mentioned in my notes column and that is the return of the big man. Maybe in a different form but with the rules being relaxed around the rim when it comes to physicality it would appear the teams are starting to play bigger lineups. I need to explore that with some of the people that I talk to regularly in the league, but that, I'm thinking, is what I will get to in the next podcast. Or, if something turns up over the weekend, we may have to zig instead of zag. In the meantime, as always, thanks for listening.